continue our time of worship by coming to the gospel reading for today from the gospel of John in the 17th chapter. I invite you, as you're able, to stand with me for the reading. We begin in the 11th verse. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent them into the world So I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also may be sanctified in the truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last words are important, right? Now, first words are great, too. Like us parents, we'll often uh, remember the first words our kids speak, but nobody else cares, right? But last words, last words, they get recorded in history. They get recorded in history so that uh, others might remember the significance of those last words words, right? So as we think about that this morning, I want to invite you to hear a few, just for fun, of those last words of some of the famous folks that some of us know about. For example, for example, Reader's Digest has all kinds of, on their website, lists and articles of last words. Let me just share a couple of them for you. The first is by someone who you might be familiar with, uh, famous for his comedy, Bob Hopes said at the very end, surprise. Of course, those are those of us, there are some of us who are hoping to, you know, like W.C. Fields at the very end, to find some loopholes, right? And then there are great thinkers of our day in history but I'm not sure by his last words if it was looking too bright for Voltaire when he said, the flames already? Of course, this Jesuit priest from history wanted to make sure you got the grammar right when he articulated what was going on and what was about to happen. He wanted to make sure that it was said correctly. All right? And then, of course, the proverbial snooze button. That's what Pope Alexander wanted, 
when he said, okay, okay, I'll come. Uh, just, just give me a, a moment, right? Last words. We remember them. They're significant. And although this prayer that Jesus prays is not, are not his final words, they are some of his final words in long discourse with his disciples. Just hours before he would go to the cross. And as he says in the prayer to the Father, consecrate himself for us. You see, and these words matter for a broken world. Remember that whenever you hear the word world in the Gospel of John, it's referring to those who are against, have rejected God. And so now here in this prayer, Jesus is not praying for the world that rejected him, that world for which, as John 3.16 will remind us, he will die for, right? But he's praying for those in God's family. Jesus, as one scholar put it, now turns from holding communion with his disciples to holding communion with the Father on their behalf, and they and we get to overhear it. And what? Does Jesus pray for? Well, this prayer called by a Lutheran theologian way back in the 1500s and now ever since, it's in the subheading that Bible editors put in your Bibles as the high priestly prayer. He prays on our behalf. But first, he prays to the Father about what he's about to do and about what he has done. And then, the verses that we'll focus on today, he prays for his disciples. And then finally, in verses 20 and following, and particularly uh, important to you and me, he prays for the church that is to come. He prays literally for you and I. So Jesus, this morning, we hear a prayer that includes prayers for us from Jesus. So I encourage you this week, as we'll just take a small chunk of this prayer, to dig it in, read the whole chapter, listen to what Jesus is praying, and let that pour over your hearts. And as he prays, he prays for truth, truth that he reveals. He prays for unity, unity that he brings, salvation that he brings, love, for us, and then love for one another, and then a shared mission. Jesus is praying for those who receive him, not the world who rejects him, but it will be the world that he'll die for. This world, I don't have to tell you, has some broken pieces. Right? Unless you need a reminder, this last month, there was a viral TikTok video by a social media influencer who had long already been uh, an influencer, but it became e even more well-known because not only of what he'd done in the social media world, but because of whose family he grew up in. You see, he took time in his TikTok video to attack the Christian faith, attack 
Bible and Bible reading with children in particular and living out the Christian life. Now, it was particularly poignant because he wasn't just attacking Christianity. He was kind of airing dirty family laundry. You see, his dad is a famous pastor, well-known evangelical Baptist pastor, known for preaching boldly, and I would even say faithfully. And so there, for all to see, not only uh, was it an attack, as Jesus describes the world, against what God has for us, it was the messiness of brokenness in family. And yet, God is well accustomed to coming to broken families. He's well accustomed to messes, like the mess that we often live in in this world. And after all, this prayer for unity and love and this invitation to be one with the Father, to be in unity with Him, in a personal relationship with God, the God of the universe, because of what Jesus has done for us, is not something new. In in fact, it's not some new software update. I guess maybe since it's the incarnation, you could call it a firmware update, but I don't think so. It is something that God has been about since the beginning of time. There are 66 books in the Bible, but just one story and one hero. Let me give you a real-life historic example of how God has been doing this, not just in the Gospel of John, but long since. Here's an example from Genesis chapter 37. The son of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph, at the time, he was 17 years old. And he was fully living out his teenage life. He was a tattletale. That's how the book begins, that chapter. Ratting out his brothers, which I'm sure you can expect really endeared him to them, right? And then... It was no secret that Joseph, not only that, but was his father's favorite, and everybody knew it. And so when Jacob sent him off to check up on his brothers out in the field, this family that today we would no doubt call dysfunctional and broken, right, and messed up on multiple levels. Isn't it great that the quote-unquote heroes of the Bible are so messed up? Remember, there's really only one hero in the Scriptures. And so Joseph heads out to see his brothers. And they see him coming, and if you've read in the book of Genesis, or maybe you've seen the Broadway play, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. 
They plot to kill him, but then they relent with some help of some of the other brothers and decide, let's just throw him in a pit. That'd be better. Oh, we can make some money. There's some traders coming by and they sell him into slavery where eventually what they had intended for evil, God would use for good. He becomes a servant in Potiphar, a servant of Pharaoh's house. And the Bible says he becomes very successful. And there he maintains faithfulness to Potiphar and faithfulness to God. And so when he's tempted to have an affair with Potiphar's wife, he flees. And you might say pessimistically, no good deed goes unpunished because for it he was thrown in prison, right? And there in prison, even there, God is with him. In his faithfulness to being true to the Father. In the prison, he helps the cupbearer. Cupbearer forgets until a couple years later and he tells Pharaoh about this guy that can interpret dreams. And then Joseph, Joseph, you know the end of the story now, right? Becomes second only to Pharaoh in power in Egypt, successfully basically running the nation and saving them from famine with God's leading. Then who comes knocking, right? His brothers, the very folks who had thrown him into slavery, who had rejected him, who had cast him out, well, I guess not for dead, but for a few silver coins. They didn't recognize him, but they came trying to buy their salvation. They were hungry. A famine was in the land. And at one point, when you read the story, you'll find that they not only brought money, they brought doubly so worried that their first offering had been rejected or that they would get in trouble. And so they came trying to pay their way to life. I got to step outside of this story for a moment about this testimony of what happened to Joseph to remember that we try to do that still today, you and me. We try to pay our way there. We try to buy our way into righteousness, into being in a relationship with God or with the world around us. We like to show off by doing what folks have come to call and it's become very popular these days, but it's been part of the human heart for the beginning, virtue signaling, right? Virtue signaling. You know how it is. Well, I'm, uh, I'm all right. I'm well-educated. So uh, I'm pretty good then. Well, then someone says, oh, yeah, well, I'm educated in the school of hard knocks. I'll up you, okay? And someone else says, well, I am debt-free. How about that? And someone else says, well, I'm well-traveled. I know the ways of the world. Someone else says, well, I'm from here. I get it. You're not from here. Oh, yeah, well, I'm not from here, so I can see it better than you. We virtue signal in all kinds of ways, don't we, to show how good we are? And just like those bags of money did nothing for the brothers before Joseph... Those virtual signals do nothing for us, either 
between us and God, to be sure, and it certainly doesn't unite us. And by the way, of course, we've got to, you know, we're creative, aren't we? We can add all kinds of new virtues to this list. And I hope you've noticed that uh, all the ones I mentioned, you could very well argue that they are indeed good things and virtues. But now we just keep adding to the list, right? Well, I wear masks. Well, I don't wear masks. I, you know, uh, well... I got vaccinated. I didn't get vaccinated. But we, we add to the list all the time of trying to show how good we are. And none of that will buy our salvation. None of that will make us righteous before God. None of that will unify us and bring us together. The only thing that reunified Jacob's dysfunctional family was the forgiveness that Joseph offered his brothers. In tears in his eyes, he forgave them. He forgave them. They couldn't buy it back. They couldn't earn it back. And neither can we. And as one scholar put it, Jesus is the true and better Joseph who forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. That's what Jesus does for us. In fact, Jesus didn't get thrown into a pit or thrown in to slavery unwillingly, he went to the cross, as we hear him pray about it today in John 17, he went willingly for you, for me. Jesus finally completes what God's faithfulness had been revealed throughout all of time and history, throughout the scriptures, foreshadowed by Joseph to be sure. And now Jesus is praying for his disciples, praying for us, that as he and the Father are united, you and I might so be united as well. How? Through the gift of grace that he offers. As one scholar put it, he took on the restrictions of this world. We're all too familiar with restrictions of this world, right? He took on the restrictions of this world and went to the cross willingly for us. And so what united those brothers and that family was grace. And what unites us with God the Father is the forgiveness and grace that Jesus and Jesus alone offers. Did you know that the verb to give shows up 17 times in this prayer. What is Jesus giving us here? What is he praying for us to be given? Ultimately, when we read it, we discover not only unity, not only shared love, not only salvation, but when you read this text, you'll discover that he is giving us 
joy. He's restoring our joy. And that unity only comes just as Jesus and the Father are one through us coming to Jesus, not through any of our own virtue, not through any of our own virtue signaling, not because someone's on the same cause as you are, but because we are in Christ. This takes me back to an analogy I used a few weeks ago by A.W. Tozer. It's worth repeating, and I'll read the full quote this time. Tozer writes, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than those who could possibly be who are there, become unity conscious. Turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Tozer puts it this way, social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. And it's purified by Christ himself. We don't become unified as Christians through ecumenical committees. Get unified through Jesus. Our families are united or reunited or brought together through the forgiveness and love that God has. God is at work in the dysfunctional families in this world and he is at work in our dysfunctional hearts and he is calling us to be with him purified and sanctified by his consecration on the cross over and over again throughout the gospel of John Jesus would say my hour has not yet come but after telling us that he had overcome this world this world that's against him to take heart he now tells us that his hour has come And so this isn't your righteousness or virtual signaling. It's Jesus' work that unifies us, that forgives us. Scholar Mounts writes, and reflecting on another scholar, Edwin Carnell, puts it like this. Modern thought tends to restrict knowledge to what may be verified by a scientific methodology and regulates faith to the sphere of the unprovable. The result is reductionist approach to reality that excludes from intelligent discussion all the genuinely important issues of life. The disciples knew with certainty and therefore believed they'd seen him rise from the dead. As theologian and apologist Edward J. Carnot often said, faith is the resting of the mind in the sufficiency of the evidence. The disciples accepted the words of Jesus, knew with certainty that he was from God. They overheard him pray this prayer and they saw him walk on water and they saw him come back to life from the grave. And they believed in his redemptive mission. I read an article this week 
that reminded me that in this broken world around us, what's often forgotten isn't our virtue signaling, isn't showing our own goodness. It's forgiveness. Are we offering forgiveness? Are we blasting the hope of grace and forgiveness that Jesus gave you on your social media page? Or are you blasting what you have done right? Are we all tuned in to the tuning fork that is Christ? Now, I'm not talking and I'm not saying that truth doesn't matter. Because if you read this prayer and let it pour over you from Jesus, you know that it does. You know that the Word made flesh and incarnate, that there's only one way to salvation, that His hour has come and it leads to the cross. But there's only one path towards unity, only one path towards salvation, and you can't pay for it, and neither can I, Only Jesus could, and he did, on the cross, with grace and forgiveness. His hour has come. He says, take heart, he's overcome the world. May these words of Jesus pour over you today, that you might be saved by the gift that he gives united together as a body of Christ so we can love one another and then love the world and be on mission together because of who Jesus is. Remember these words of Jesus. In verses 20 and following, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that I have given, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus has overcome the world. He is praying for you. Amen.